0: Hello and welcome to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. Plus. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion, and this is your guide to the galaxy. From Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds, space is a big place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Every week I'm recapping and breaking apart every episode of Season 2 with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. Thanks for having me. And this episode, we are talking about the finale, David. It's the last episode of Season 2. Yep, uh, The finale uh, is titled Creation Myths, which uh, really started a lot of wheels turning for me. I thought it was amazing. And for our finale, we're very excited to be joined by, I think, arguably the most romantic member of the Imperial trio, Cassian Bilton, who plays Don. Cleon the Younger, welcome Cassian.
1: Hey, Jason. Very happy to be here. <laughs> I like being called a romantic as well. That's kind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, quickly, a recap. This episode, written by yourself, David, and Liz Pong, directed by Alex Graves, uh, we start by learning Harry's plan, how he escaped what seemed to be sure death. You drowned. I s- saw your body. I-, I held it. Of course, we saw or appeared to see Harry drown in episode six, but we learned that he actually didn't drown. You held a
1: body, Salvo. It
0: just wasn't mine. Gail used a bit of her uh, mentalic powers. Harry overpowered the guard. Uh, Gail used some illusion magic. And through the last few episodes, they both went into mental and physical hiding to prevent anyone from seeing through the ruse. So we counted primes together, a barricade of
1: numbers to shield our thoughts.
0: Very, very sneaky. With Tellum off the board, the mentalics wake up and they uh, seem very pleased at this uh, turn of events. Our thoughts are our own. You freed us. They even throw, a, you know, a barbecue for their new friends, celebrate their freedom. But unfortunately, young Josiah has a little echo of of Telum still bouncing around somewhere in there. And he draws down on Gail, but Salvor senses that something's about to happen. She catches the bullet for Gail. And I was left absolutely floored by this. She dies in, in Gail's arms, essentially.
2: Help! Someone help us!
0: Still wary of the mule, Harry and Gale enter cryosleep together. Day is on a power trip after destroying Terminus. He wants to uh, blow up every planet that uh, crossed him. We will destroy them all. Bell refuses. Uh, you know that's just too much. one planet fine, but uh, seven or more planets—that's too much. Hober then. Shows that he has been in cahoots with the spacers and unveils their plan to crash the Imperial fleet into itself.
1: We played you.
0: And then through the use of that nifty castling device, Day is ejected into space. Constant is loaded up on the only ship that can escape the Destiny's destruction. Not not a ship, a cleaning module. That's right. The, clean, <laughs> that's
2: right. <laughs> the external cleaning module.
0: Hover and Bell go down with the ship toasting the rebels with some of that terrible, terrible wine <laughs> that Over has been saving up.
1: You can really taste the, I mean, there's a the sweetness, but it's, it's shit, right? Yeah, I think it might be corked.
0: Constance's cleaning module docks into the vault, floating through space, and guess what? Everybody is in the vault.
1: The vault can do a great many things.
0: Uh, space, of course, works very, very differently in the vault, as we know, but this is a shock. Uh, Dr. Selden reveals he always planned to sacrifice Terminus, but not its people. A kind god, after all. Uh, finally, on Trantor, Demerzel is trying to mop up all the cleonic messes that have spilled everywhere. She's now told Dusk and Rue her whole story. We could reprogram you. I would destroy you if you tried. She can't leave them alive so she must kill them. It is my job to root out secrets. She also reveals that she was the one responsible for hiring the blind angels to assassinate Day in our first episode, uh, framing Sarath and Rue in order to prevent the marriage and preserve the authority of the genetic dynasty.
1: You're the one puppeteering this whole show. A puppeteer pulling her own strings.
0: Sarath is rested. Dawn realizes that Demerzel has betrayed them. He stages a public wedding, so she can't, kill them brazenly. Demerzel is ready to step in and kill them anyway, but then she realizes, wait, that's not them. They're using face scramblers. I've been duped. Dawn and Sarath, ready to start the rebellion from somewhere in the galaxy. They flee. I will be required to hunt you down. That's three Cleons down for Demerzel. She goes to the Cleon cellar to decant a fresh batch. And she has the Prime Radiant. Another huge shock. I can already see that wonderful things fly ahead. But that's not it. We end the season on a delicious cliffhanger of a hook. We see the mule looking terrified, vulnerable, scared of Gail Dornick, talking to someone. You're not going to tell us, but who is it, David?
2: Obviously, I'm not going to tell you. Gosh.
0: (laughs) 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 Gosh, I feel excitement and a little bit of pride of of not calling the things, but but kind of knowing that there was a larger plan taking place. How are you feeling?
2: Emotional. I mean, it, it, t- it took us a, about two years to make it. We shot for 213 days. So, wow. yeah, th- this season finale was trickier than season one because, yes, there were some surprises revealed, uh, in particular the parentage yeah. of Salver, but that episode functioned a, a bit more like a coda. Whereas this one, it was just, we had to make do on all of these things that we'd set up. And so it was like, are we going to stick a landing? And and is this going to be elegant? Or is, this, is the whole thing just going to collapse under its own weight and just break apart? But um, I'm incredibly proud of it. And I think we stuck the landing. I would say so. And a lot of second season's Falter, and mm-hmm. I don't think we did. Um, I think
0: you guys elevated. If anything,
2: well, thank you. And yes, a lot of your predictions were right, but
0: not all of them. That's right, not all of them.
2: Cassian, I'm I'm curious from you. Mm. I, I well, a I'm curious to hear how you feel about how Dawn's story ends. But I'm also curious, yeah. like when you were reading the final script, what was your experience? Like what what what, do you, what was your takeaway?
1: I think from a Dawn point of view, I remember um, we had this great chat at the beginning of the season and you were like, oh, I just want Dawn to have the ending that we all thought and wanted for him in season one. Yes. And there's something really like nicely redemptive about Dawn finally getting that, driving off into the mm. sunset moment that in season one, from the outset, it's just bad news after bad news after bad yeah, news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've had a lot of people say when they sit at home and watch it that Dawn is this, like as you said, Jason, like, romantic in some way. Yeah. And his dreams are so crushed in season one that I think when I read the finale of season two, I was like, oh, thanks, David. (laughs) 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 Because I just don't trust the writers at all. I'm like, Dawn's going to get it. He's going to get it in that last episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's why I love playing him so much. I think he's so, like, inherently hopeful in a world that seems so hopeless a lot of the time. Well, I think Cleon is Mm -hmm. hopeful at that
2: age.
0: Mm. You know what I mean? Before he's
1: been sort of crushed by (laughs) the weight of everything. Yeah, Yeah, I think he is. I think he is more hopeful than the others because I think he doesn't really have the responsibility yet. And it's such an intriguing question to ask. It's like, where is that inflection point? When does Mm -hmm. dawn become day? And is it that he hardens so that he can take on the power? Or is it that the power itself hardens him? I don't know the answer to that yet, but that's kind of the joy of playing the part. Is it the lines are blurred?
0: One of the things I love about season two Dawn is he's still idealistic, still hopeful, but there's a little bit of strength underneath Mm -hmm. this kind of Mm, uh, gauzy hopefulness that he has. Do you have a favorite version of of Dawn?
1: I don't know if I have a favorite because obviously I've got a bit of a soft spot for the original Dawn. Um, Mm. But I think there was something really fun about turning up on set at the beginning of this season and saying to Alex, one of our directors, and David, like, So are we playing the same part or are we starting again (laughs) or are we kind of doing both? And that's basically what we ended up doing, which is, yes, I'm wearing the same costume on the same sets with the same actors. But this is a very distinct person um, and holds himself and feels comfortable in his skin in a way that season one Dawn never would. Mm. And I think something that I certainly tried to point towards is we need the audience to conceivably believe that this Dawn could end up being day, maybe not in the near future, but for Sarah's character to be that much of a threat, it's far more exciting for the audience to think, well, actually, the succession could be a lot sooner than it would have ever been for season one, Dawn. And actually, yeah. he could have mm-hmm. sat on that throne. And the fact that it's been stolen from him is far more impactful.
2: It's it's interesting what you said about the portrayal of Dawn this season kind of being a combination of both, because it's this really tricky tightrope that we walk, my fellow writers and I, with with Day, Dawn and Dusk, because... They are different characters, but at the same time, we are aware the audience mm-hmm. sees them as different but not different. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah, totally. we want to portray them as different characters, but also build on the audience's awareness of what they did. So to that end, we felt this Dawn needed to be not quite as naive as the previous Dawn. It's a really tricky writing performing conundrum that we've set <laughs> upon ourselves that i've never experienced before
1: yeah 100 percent. and jason i think this is why like david is such an unbelievable presence to have on set because he is kind of our lighthouse in a lot of ways mm. and is so good at directing us and saying we well, you know actually you don't need to worry about that right now or really what is the scene about like, what are we what is the relationship here and as much as, the, as much as the show is so enormous what makes the show so compelling, at least from the Kleon storyline, is what's going on between these people. Mm. Like, At least for me, it feels like relationship is everything in, the, in that story. And so when we're working, yeah, you asked me if it was overwhelming. Like, it, I'm going into a scene going, what do I, what do I want <laughs> from Day? And what is demos I want from me? And how are we going to navigate that? And that to me feels like you could, be, you could be on any set. That's what it always comes down to, is what do I want and how am I going to get it and who's in my way? And in the Cleon household, everyone's in your way, <laughs> it seems like.
0: <laughs> Cassian, so much of what is fun about this and great about this show is uh, the relationship that uh, your character, uh, Don has with the, the rest of the Imperial trio, Dan Dusk, yeah. played by uh, Lee Pace and Terrence Mann, respectively. Well, what was it like when you first got into a room, got on set with those two actors and started doing scenes together. How, when did that first
1: take place? I remember when I first arrived on Foundation, I was cast maybe two days before and put on a plane and everyone had just landed in Iceland and we all sat around this table and everyone was very quiet. And then Terry leant in and was like, hey, man, sorry, we haven't met. Like, uh, who are you? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm Cassie and I'm playing Dawn. And he was like, brother Dawn? I was like, yeah. And he stood up and he just shouted, hug me, brother, and gave me this huge (laughs) hug. (laughs) And I think ever since then, I felt so welcomed by him and Lee. I mean, there's such, it's kind of like a riddle, this part. I've heard Lee say that before, and that's definitely how I feel. It feels both like we each have distinct ownership, but also like collective ownership. And it's a bit like jazz music in that you sort of learn the rules of the Cleons, Mm. or Cleon the first, I guess, and then we each independently break those rules In ways that are similar, but also ways that are different. And I think what's so fun about season two is that we've kind of laid the groundwork and we don't need to be too on the nose with it with the audience. Like they already get that we're meant to be identical and we just have fun riffing with the idea. And I remember there was a moment, I think it was you, David, or maybe it was Alex, where we were just on set doing scenes. And yeah, I think you came up to us and I'm like, wait, you guys are doing it like the identical stuff in the scene. Do you realize that? So I think it's yeah, almost yeah, yeah. like yeah, 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 embedded that was. into us by now. Yes. Like, I think it's sort of just like in our bones, trying to match and trying to be distinct.
0: What was the audition process like, Cassian?
1: Before this show, I was doing a whole bunch of theater and then starting out as an actor is no easy feat. Mm-hmm. And I was, as a result, doing ticket stubs and selling ice cream in the interval <laughs> of a theater in London. And so I'd go every night and sell my ice cream and do my tickets. And then I got this email that was like, the guy that made Batman and Superman wants you to audition for this thing. And I was like, really? And then I went in and I hadn't auditioned in a while. And so I went in and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go in as an American. because yeah, we let's didn't just know. roll the dice. We didn't like, know what do I was, lose?
2: We didn't know, which just funny now that I'm hearing you. <laughs> talk yeah. <laughs> in your native accent we yeah. didn't know
1: that you weren't american <laughs> wow. so i just went in and i was like oh hey guys nice to meet you all um <laughs> should we do the scenes and then did like two scenes they're like thanks for coming in and i was like oh well i've you sent me five scenes didn't you and i could see them being like, oh uh okay we weren't probably meant to send you those, but let's just do all of them then. And so I did all, the- <laughs> so I did all of them. Because um, I was like, you know what? I've prepped them. We might as well have a go. And um, then I got called back maybe a day later by Lucinda Sison, who was so unbelievably kind and generous One to me. One of our
2: casting directors, I just want to say.
1: Yes. Yeah, um, I think as a young actor, like you can certainly feel like you're on a bit of like a factory line. You turn up, you get taped, you walk out of a room. And instead, Lucinda just sat there and spoke to me for about 40 minutes about the kind of work I wanted to do, who I admired, where I wanted to be in my work. And at the end was like, yeah, should we just, should we just put this on tape for the people in the States? We might as well. And I was, As a result, I was so free and so open mm-hmm. and so relaxed and ultimately so present that I left the audition and I called my mum and I was like, you know what, even if, even if I don't get this job, I feel so, like, valued and, like, I feel so great. And then I got a call, like, two days later and was on a plane, sat there with David. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was, it was all within, like, six days maybe. Yeah, yeah. it was really fast, really, really fast. And, but that feels like a million years ago now, doesn't it, David? I mean, that feels like... I mean, it was four years ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow.
0: Well, let's talk about the episode, Um the theme of which... I think it was something for me like Checkmate. David, we've heard you describe the show as, as a thousand-year chess match between two great men. Uh, and here it feels as if Harry has certainly won this round of the game. For sure. Harry and Dr. Selden have seen many moves ahead of everyone with only a few notable hiccups, tragic hiccups, really, when you think about Salvor dying and uh, all of Terminus being destroyed. Uh, but really an incredible checkmate from Harry and 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 Dr. Selden. So many threads come together in this in this episode. How are you able to kind of keep keep track of all of this throughout the throughout the season to get here?
2: I have no fucking idea. I, I, don't, I don't know. I I can't I'm I'm now that I'm removed, now that we finished it and I'm watching it, I'm like mm. how the fuck do we do that? I don't I, I'm I'm being really honest. You know, look, we we rewrite and we rewrite and we rewrite. And yeah. I have the best fellow writers in the world. And we do the large moves in the first draft or even the second draft sometimes. Brute force them in and they they sort of work but they sort of don't. And it something that I learned from working with James Cameron is that, you know, he will call he will come up with a big idea or a big ending for a story. Mm-hmm. And he'll say, I want to write towards that. Like, I don't know how we're going to get there, but I have faith that we can figure it out and make it make sense. And so what I try to do was invert expectations for where the characters wound up
0: Mm -hmm.
2: the last season. So that's why I felt Dawn should have a happy ending this season. And as horrific as it was to kill Salver, I felt that that also... You know, you can't always get the audience yeah. what they want. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. I also felt that the interesting thing with Salver is that it, you know, we start out this season with whether or not we're living in a deterministic universe and whether or not Gail's visions can change. Mm. And so she loses this daughter that she'd barely begun to embrace. But the weird gift that her daughter gives her is that the future can be changed, yeah. which is also... Mm really like a big fucking deal (laughs) mom
1: don't you see what this means it means we're not trapped
0: you were right the future can be changed you can still get it back on the right course I have absolute faith in it. no 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 no. It's it's... You know, shockingly, tragically, heartbreakingly, we lose Salvor. I was not expecting it. Genuinely surprised. Genuinely surprised. Genuinely shocked. You know, the shot, when you held on the shot and you watch her die. I'm like, oh my god, that they're doing it. They're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that decision.
2: As a viewer, I. I I like it when I'm surprised, Mm -hmm. but when I feel that it's not gratuitous. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were playing fair. We do talk about it in the end of the second episode. You know what I mean? It's not, I I don't think it's a move that comes out of left field. So I do think the audience will be surprised, but if you go back and rewatch the season, they're talking about it the
0: whole time. It's the motive, one of the major motivating forces for Gale's Mm -hmm. storyline this season is what if Salvador died? die? I need to prevent that. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So the writers, my fellow writers, did not want to do it when we first talked about it. Liz Pong, who was uh, the co-writer of the episode and a tremendous writer, she really did not want to write that scene. Like she, she was like, I don't think I can do it. And I said, I will take a stab at it. So I wrote it, uh, the, that those scenes. And I, I said, listen, if you don't, If you don't buy it, if you don't think it works, we won't do it. Mm. And to a person, they all said, fuck you. It works, you know. (laughs) And um, and even then we didn't let Apple or the studio know about it till we were like halfway through shooting the scene, basically until we had to shoot that scene. Yeah. And we we had a fake script where she didn't die (laughs) because i wasn't sure so we we bought we filmed for about three or four months before we started to let some people alex graves was well leah was the first person and then alex graves because i just wasn't i just wasn't sure yeah i just wanted i wanted us Mm. to marinate on it for a while and think about it and one of the hardest days of my nights of my professional career was when I had dinner with Leah and let her know what was going to happen. And I said, read it and let me know what you think. And we still hadn't shown it to Skydance or Apple. Wow. And I said the same thing. I said, tell me honestly how, whether or not you think it works. And she was like really sad, but she said, I think it works. And I said, okay, I guess we're going to go
0: for it. So, wow. So it's a, it's a weird one. I was thinking a lot about the title of this episode, Creation Myths, and the opening epigraph that Gail opens with.
1: When I was a child, I used to ask my mother endless questions. What happens after we die? Where does our energy go? And what about the universe? Can it die? How was it ever born? How could there be nothing and then suddenly... Something,
0: and it started dawn on me rewatching this that really she has answered those questions to a degree, and part of that is can the future be changed? Yes, and she realizes now in the in the worst possible way that yes, yeah. the future yeah. can be changed. Yeah, um, and yet Harry comes out unscathed yet again. <laughs> this guy, he—I guess he is a genius. He really is an what a amazing chess player, poker player he is. I need to talk about this opening sequence that comes off almost, it feels like a heist, mini heist movie mm. to watch how Harry and Gail got away with this.
2: Well, first of all, Alex Gray's did a spectacular job on that opening sequence. Yeah. Because we basically had to shoot everything, not even twice. We had to shoot everything like three times because we had Jared in the pool and then climbing and in the woods and yeah. doing all that stuff. And then we had Gail also doing the exact same shots in the pool and in the woods so that we can intercut between them. But then we also had Gail sort of mimicking those emotions because she wasn't physically there. So she was back in the summer palace or, you know, trying to hide her thoughts from Salver, trying to hide her thoughts from Tellum. And so we kind of had to shoot all that three times. And it was intensely complicated to plan. And there's a beautiful shot in there that was not written that Alex came up with where Harry goes to get some water and he, he's, he sees like his reflection yeah. in a puddle of water and then he scoops some water up and then it's Gale, And that's just a, a beautiful example of a director kind of taking what's on the page and visualizing it in a way that's even more poetic mm-hmm. than you had anticipated. It was really complicated to shoot and really, really complicated to edit. We spent a full week Editing, um, and just shaving frames and shaving frames and going back and very complicated.
0: It's cool, uh, also that you know I've been sitting here before I actually watched the episode, just wondering, okay, how are they? How did they get out of this? And to learn how they did, and then part of it um, was this reciting of primes in order to shield their thoughts from the mentalics, and that you actually get a hint of that when when Salvor and Gail you know, uh, meet each other in the woods Yeah, and Gail seems so remote and it's because she's just trying to keep track of all these numbers. You really played, again, in your words, played fair with the audience here. It was really great.
2: I hope we did. I mean, and and the other thing that they do in this episode is in episode six, Talam gives Gail this sort of primer on how to be a mentalic, right? And to ground your illusion and do all these things. And so it it really is like a like a dummy's guide to how to do this. <laughs> and then and then everything that that Harry and Gail do in, in what you see in Ten, which is a flashback, is is everything that Tellum taught her. So hopefully the audience won't feel like we've cheated them and that we've we've played fair.
0: Cassian, when you watch the show, mm. How do, you, how do you react to the, the other storylines that you're not in? How did you react to learning about Salvor dying, for instance, or Harry being alive after all?
1: Yeah, I think when I'm watching the other parts of the show, what we're trying to look for is like connective tissue between all the different storylines. Because I think when people ask me what the show is about, despite all these different worlds, different planets, and different species of people, what is the thing that unites them all? And so I think when I'm watching... I'm always kind of laser focused and playing Sherlock in a way and trying to find what the through line is between all these stories. When it came to Salvour's death, yeah, I mean Leah is a huge loss to the show. But in the same breath I always felt with the predictability and the determinism of of Gail and the way she's invited into Harry's life, at some point we had to see her future be destroyed, hmm. not just the future. I think she she's very singular opposite this massive future ahead of her. Yeah, Mamet says this great thing that I return to a lot, which is great story moments are both completely surprising and utterly inevitable. Mm. And there's something about Gail's future being so intensely impacted mm. that was such a like stroke of wisdom from from David because finally the audience get that moment. So yeah, I really... I'm very, very sad to see Leah go because Leah brought such a, a brilliant energy and a vitality to the show and is a formidable actor, i got to say. But in the same breath, when it comes to story, I think that will really, really pack a punch.
2: Well, well said, uh, I have to say. Uh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I David. mean, I think, I think if we do this third season, you should co-host this. But, um, uh, but um, the other thing, though, I would say is... It's fucking foundation. So, like we, you know, we we killed off <laughs> fucking foundation. Yeah, yeah. No, but we killed Alfie, <laughs> gracious character, off. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, in episode five of season one, and then did a scene with him. Yeah, in season mm. two.
0: Yeah,
2: and so yeah, uh, you know, it's not impossible that no. we'll see Salver again. Um, yeah, even without trickery. So that's one of the mm. things that. I enjoy about the show is that we kind of go back and show you scenes that kind of reframe the context of certain things.
0: Um, Okay, let's break down where we are essentially in this story. Um, Empire seems very, very creaky now. And in addition to the threat from Foundation and Dr. Seldon and Harry Seldon, now there seems as if there could be a nascent... Kind of counter faction brewing with Dawn and Sarath, and perhaps backed by the Cloud Dominion.
2: That and Empire also doesn't. I mean, and this is a biggie. Doesn't have access to the spacers anymore. Yeah. So what that means is that Empire won't be able to just jump, you know, fold space willy nilly. So they've really been been kind of crippled. And and conversely, even though Foundations fleet is small, Foundation can jump these Whisper ships to Trantor and and back. And so Empire is really back on its heels.
0: Okay, let's talk about Day for a moment. I, I, was, I began to think about the corruption of the Genetic Empire as essentially like, you know, three kind of bodies orbiting each other, slowly coming out of alignment. And I think you really see that with Day, who is in his full grandiosity here after what seems to be surely a victory. His aura, though, is off. Right? Why does he never put his aura back on? Is he just that arrogant in that moment? Full victory. Oh, yeah. Everything is yeah. destroyed. Yeah.
2: Well, the question is whether or not the aura would have saved him in space. I don't right, think right. it would have. Right. Would it saved him from decompression? Maybe, but not the lack of oxygen. Right. So I'm not sure that that would have made a difference in the end, anyway. And I do think if he had paused to get his aura when he left the vault, he probably would have turned it off when he was fighting yeah. Hober. anyway. Yeah. Because I just think he's so fucking arrogant. I agree. He thinks he's completely owned them. Like, he's just like, I destroyed the planet. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm on the top of my game. I'm awesome. <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: and he's completely wrong. And that's due to the Spacers and their deal with Harry. Yeah.
1: Something's wrong with the jump sequence. Abort! Abort! What's wrong? What's happening?
2: Each ship is jumping into the space occupied by its neighbor. A chain reaction that will consume the entire fleet. Stop it.
1: Jump us to safety. I cannot. Space, once folded, stays folded. Then prepare a lifeboat for me.
0: The command sequence also disabled all of the landing bays and the launch tubes. But your spacers will also die. It's suicide. A small price to pay for my people's freedom. Talk about the the breadcrumbs, the little things you laid here because I felt like this is the one thing I felt like I got right. Um
2: sort well, of You got a couple of things right. Yeah. You know, it's it's set up in episode 3, right? You see Hobart trying to pull a con. So you think when Harry talks to him, you know, we were saying to the writers like he's got to try to pull a con. Yeah. Like he's he's good at being a con man. So Harry or Dr. Selden rather has to employ him to be a con man and to play this shell game with the spacers. But the other thing that's set up in episode three is the fact that Bell is mining for this material that the uh, the spacers require uh, for their (laughs) diet. That's the choke chain that Empire uses to keep the spacers in check because that's how they're able to navigate. And so it's not by happenstance that those Hober's con, initial con, and and this material that Bell is mining are introduced in the same episode.
0: We talked about Salvor's death, how it affected your team, the show. Tell us about the decision to have have Bell and Hobart go down with the ship, drinking the worst wine in the galaxy.
2: You know, I I was pretty sure early on that I wanted them to do that, mm-hmm. um, and share the wine, and it's it's tough because I. I really like both of those characters. I, I, I like them in the books and then I liked our versions of them in the show. And I adore those actors. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I toyed with, Oh, you know, could we have contrived to have certainly at least Hober survive, you know, uh-huh. get, get in that cleaning module. It seemed like if the if EV really <laughs> squished in with, yeah. you know, constantly could have fit. And I, it, that was just one of those things where it's like, as a as a sort of viewer slash person, it just it felt poetic and funny, and it's it's. I find that scene heartbreaking, though. Yeah, there's a moment where there, you know, I think the audience isn't quite. My perception is the audience isn't quite sure whether or not we're actually going to do it right. That's and, how I felt, and um, and there's this beautiful moment. I remember seeing the take where. Hober sort of glances off camera at at the lights that are flashing and you see both of the characters are trying to be brave, but yeah. Hober's kind of getting distracted and and just looking out there and just, fuck, I'm gonna die. Like this the guy who's keeps escaping death, yeah. like Houdini, you see this moment on his face where you he realize he's gonna die. And Nansen Bell says, Hey, hey, and redirects his attention back to him, and you know, what was that? crazy creature you know that horrible beast and it's such a generous little moment that bell does and he does distract him from his impending death and i it just kills me every time i see that
1: what was the name of that uh horrifying creature on your ship oh who, who becky yeah this wine tastes like Becky's asshole. <laughs> it does, yeah. That's the toast. To Becky's asshole,
2: you know. And then just undercutting it with just the most ridiculous toast of all time, which <laughs> is which is funny, but also heartbreaking. I don't know. I'm I'm uh, I'm just really proud of uh, Alex Graves who directed that, and and um, just everyone. Uh, I I. It's exactly the kind of ending for a character that I like where it's just, it's funny but heartbreaking at the same time and bittersweet. and All the things that the shows that I really admire, that's that's what we strive for. And Mm -hmm. I just think we would have been cheating the audience if Hober had escaped. I think his journey was to be the fool who... Then does the right thing at the end and makes this grand sacrifice, and because of that, pierces Empire's hide, you know, by robbing them of the
0: spacers. Um, the vault. How? How big I, it's, is cl- it? it? Clearly, we're just scratching the the surface of the capabilities of the vault. But how did it? How did it achieve saving everyone on Terminus? And I, I would assume there's an upper limit to how big it can get.
2: If you go back to to. The opening of episode 10 of season one, mm-hmm. we did show the vault in space because mm-hmm. it had to get from the deliverance to Terminus in right. the first place. So it is clearly capable of moving through space, of, of, of having some kind of propulsion and, and whatnot and containing some kind of environment within it. Is there an upper limit to it? Yeah, there is an upper limit to it. Um, but. I think the inside of it is it is at least as big as Manhattan. Wow. Possibly even as big as the entire planet of Terminus. I do know that if we ever get to the end that I have in in my head for how the show ends, we will have to calculate the upper limit of it.
0: Ah. Interesting.
2: It, it is something I've thought about and is sort of a hanging physics-related question.
0: Thinking of this chess game, on paper, I think you could say that Demarzel won. She put down this kind of nascent rebellion. Uh, she is uh, swept away the corrupted Cleons, broken out a few fresh ones. But what a tortured existence that she lives when you really understand what she's dealing with, well, and has been for all these years.
2: On paper, she mm-hmm. fulfilled her program. That's
0: a gr- better way of saying it. Right. Right, better way of
2: saying it. And is keeping this ridiculous imperial confection going, you know? Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, she lives this horrendous existence.
0: Cassian, talk about your relationship, uh, your character's relationship with Demerzel, played by the wonderful Laura Bieren. Mm. Because it it like your character, really seems to have evolved a lot by season two.
1: Hugely, yeah. And I think in season two, you see so much more of that yearning Mm. in Demoiselle for connection. Sometimes she utilizes that to her benefit in order to control the Cleons, which I guess is more programming-oriented. But I think, particularly when it comes to her relationship with Dawn, there is something maternal there. And yeah, she is this robot who ultimately... Will rear these children, then sleep with them, and then basically nanny them as they become these like adult babies. But I do think there's a real tragedy, particularly in this episode, that she doesn't like losing her dawns because yeah. there's something about them that reminds her of the love that we see in Ep9 between yeah. yeah. Demoiselle and Cleon the First. And so I think weirdly, there's something about Dawn that is. Strangely nostalgic for Demoiselle. There's something about Dawn that roots her in what originally gave her that spark to fall in love with Cleon the first. And so I think their division at the end of this episode is really, really tragic for her, and Laura does such a great job of walking that tightrope between playing something that's entirely automated and mm. something that is inherently so soulful.
2: I, I th- also think that. They're all prisoners, right? Everyone after Clean the First is a prisoner. Hmm. And yes, I think there's heartbreak, but I also think there's a part of her that's glad that this Don managed to escape.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's like she couldn't escape, but he did. Yeah. I know your true feelings are always hard to ascertain, but I do hope you're happy for me. And I hope you find happiness too, Demoiselle. With all my heart... You were good to me. The closest thing to a mother I ever had. I know you were programmed to be that, but um, I'd like to believe you would have been that way. Even without it. There's so much baked into that phone call, which is really testament to our writers, that I think there's an element of, of jealousy at the end of that phone call, particularly after what we see in Ep9, that... Yeah there's there's jealousy but there's also this gift it's like oh i I wish i could escape like you are but in the same breath like i'm so grateful that someone can yeah because i think a lot of the time she must look at the cleons and go well none of you want to be here either i don't think any of us want to be here i think we're all stuck (laughs) you know it's like harry and the prime radiant in Ep one that's sort of the the internal life of these people living in this palace the whole time
2: but i'm also interested in pursuing the hanging chad of <laughs> of don and sarah's <laughs> child.
0: Yes. Yeah, mm.
2: yeah. so mm. i hope we get to that as well cuz uh we have some really interesting ideas for when when that other shoe drops a couple mm. centuries later.
0: Don and Sarah's uh new baby. Is this the f- is this the final nail in the coffin of the genetic dynasty will this try the existence of this child be the thing that finally you know tears the genetic dynasty apart
2: i think the answer would be possibly Mm. and then what's not to say that that child or the the descendant of that child could also show up after the genetic dynasty is empire's fallen Look, if we have our way, that that descendant will return, (laughs) but it it may not be before Empire Falls.
0: Cassian, as the only surviving member of this round of uh, Imperial trio, I I, I wonder, (laughs) you know, the Imperial fleet is in ruins. Demarzel is Mm. in full janitor mode. uh, Mm. But now you have Dawn cut loose from the tethers of empire. How do you,
1: yeah, you feel
0: do. like he's going to respond to that? Because on the one hand, he has yearned for freedom as long as we've known him. At the same time, he's never truly experienced it. Um, how do yeah, you think he's going to totally. do it?
1: I always find there to be such, like, an interesting and funny irony whenever the Cleons stand on public stages and say, respect and enjoy the peace. Because there is <laughs> there is no peace at all. Yeah, And I think there's something about the way that Dawn ends this season, I'm just hopeful that he finds peace. I feel like there's so mm-hmm. much inner turmoil with these Cleons. I feel like they're so unhappy and I feel like so much of them just wants to be like held and told they're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really where De- demoiselle this season has learnt that and uses it to her um, her benefit. But yeah, I hope he finds peace, I think. That's what I hope. Who knows? Listen, he'll probably go to another planet and become like a massively tyrannical leader again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that's the question of the show, isn't its is, Are these traits genetically embedded? And is everything deterministic? Or do we have some agency in how we turn out? And I quite like the fact that the show asks that question but doesn't answer it. So yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. What do you think, David? Well, I'm not going to tell you, at least not on this <laughs>
2: podcast. <laughs> Uh, other than if we get there to expect the unexpected.
0: Uh, let's talk about Demarzel and the Prime Radiant. Okay, she has the Prime Radiant, which is a, a shock. And we've seen that the Prime Radiant has acted this season as a sort of listening device maybe, for maybe. a Selden, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did Demarzel get her hands on the Prime Radiant?
2: You mean physically?
0: Yeah. How did... it's, it, was, it was physically in the vault. She just picked it up and, and left. Yeah. Wow. Yeah brazen tell us about the decision to 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 give the the radian to uh Demersault. well that's
2: one of those examples of writing towards something yeah right so i think i had that idea pretty late in the game like when we were writing episode nine and i just i i just thought it would be unexpected yeah it was right <laughs>
0: it really was you
2: know and just like a like a baller move on Seldon's part. <laughs> We've explained that it's a quantum device that mm-hmm. essentially exists in the state of superpositions. It can effectively be in two places at once. You can think of it in that way. And so if Gale has the prime radiant, Gale or Harry on Ignis, a prom radiant or an aspect of the prom radiant, that could allow them to spy on Selden in the vault. Mm-hmm. But once Selden realizes that he's the left hand and not the right <laughs> <Yeah>. hand, <laughs> yeah. and that there's another foundation, one could surmise that Seldon could use this to spy on Demerzel, an empire, in the future, which could be valuable.
0: Uh can I tell you my theory, my yeah, yeah. theory? Yeah. You know, she's the only thing holding this empire together, really. Mm-hmm. And I think What's the thing that she wants more than anything else? I think freedom. Mm-hmm. I think with the Prime reading, she could try for a factory reset. It's a supercomputer. She could try and figure out if that thing could set her free somehow.
2: I, I think that that is a a, a a definitely plausible, viable idea, which I'm neither going to confirm nor <laughs> deny. But I will say, I will say this. There's, a, there's another aspect to it, too. That um, beyond even those two things that we talked about,
0: oh. that's interesting. Um, and and finally, the mule at the end of this episode seems st- truly scared, um, which is such an amazing, <laughs> such an amazing cliffhanger. Flipping the script, yeah, yeah, of Gale, yeah. I have to find Gale Dornick. Before she finds me, I have to destroy her.
2: It's interesting. That scene was a scene that I wrote very, very late in the game. I mean, we were were well into shooting the season Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and had this idea for that scene. And I just thought it would be really interesting to just, you know, it'd be like, I don't know. I'm going back to like the early MCU days of like, Mm -hmm. you know, showing Thanos early on, but then showing Thanos like all doubtful, you know, or something like that. Every time in the past people wanted to adapt Foundation, they always wanted to start with the Mule. And I just felt in my bones. I said to Apple when we pitched it, you're not going to get the Mule until season three. And then I sort of trickily found a way to preview Mm -hmm. the Mule in season two. And... One of the reasons why I wanted to go with Apple is because everyone else wanted to have the mule in the first season, yeah. and Apple was willing to wait. So, yes, it seems like Empire's on its heels and Foundation is ascendant, and, and then this mule guy's going to show up and just completely put everything in a blender. And what's exciting about that is it creates for the possibility for some unexpected alliances.
0: mm is the mule uh, alive during the events of season two? Is he witnessing the things going on? No. Wow. Uh,
2: so you, you're like, how does that work? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> Well, all right. Well, David, it's our last game of building the foundation. Stop,
2: stop.
0: Show don't you You're to build your foundation. You were
2: supposed to be the one. Why you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know
0: nothing! The foundation is, uh, you know, it's very solid right now. But uh, it's off in space, floating off to who knows where. On, you know, it's on Ignis. It's maybe on Una's world. But still, we must build the foundation together. Are you ready? Yes, Cassian. Just to let you know, in every episode of the podcast, we play a light speed round uh, of questions called "Building the Foundation." Uh, I know, Jason. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Wonderful. <laughs> He's listened to all of these. Uh, please join in when the when the spirit moves. Okay. Uh, do you think Dawn ever has to hide anything from Dusk? You know, like a like a like a teen from his his grandfather, like his excursions to the Gossamer Court, or are they really the same person? They don't hide any of the things that they do from each other.
1: I feel like after day breaks, the collective deal between the three of them, as much as they're working together, when it comes down to it, it's every man for themselves.
0: Mm. David, what is the uh, is there a name for the spacer? scales that were embedded in hober's arm. No. Uh, what what do they do? How do they work? I have no idea. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god.
2: <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm not even going to try to bullshit you. <laughs> I love that.
0: Um is there a th- another foundation I uh, like a third foundation? Like a third foundation. Why do you think that? I mean, what is Kale doing? Uh, oh, interesting. You know.
2: Well, I will say this. There is another faction,
0: mm. you know. Okay, I like it.
2: That's kind of been laying hiding in plain sight from the beginning.
0: Okay, now I'll, uh, fine, I'll rewatch. <laughs> I mentioned Kale as part of my uh, clearly not correct theory that there might be a third foundation out there, which leads us to the enduring mystery of Harry's body. <laughs> how did it? How did he get his body back?
2: If we get to the Second or third episode of season four, mm-hmm. you will learn that answer. Wow.
0: Um, uh, who was it that Kali and Harry talked to? I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gentlemen, you have to choose one form of immortality. Which would you prefer? Harry's, Telum's, em, or Empire's? only wow. one is truly evil so that's, that's <laughs>
2: yeah but they're all awful yeah um yeah you know i don't think i'd want to be a digitized consciousness i mean i guess if i didn't care about morality it would be tellums mm. right and mm-hmm. i don't think i'd want to be just a clone with no agency yeah but i didn't care about stealing a body i would go for tellum i don't know what about you
1: I think, obviously, I'm biased, but I think there's something about the illusion of the fact you're your own person that is at least something. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> there's something about the fact that you like or at least I'm pretend that maybe I'm different. So um, maybe the clones, because the other the other two seem pretty bleak to me. They're all they bleak. Seem... They're all awful, which is really yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. What
2: a good question, because it's like we we offer. Th- By season two, three forms of immortality. And they're all awful. (laughs) They're all
0: terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gentlemen, thanks for joining us, David and Cassian. It's been a wonderful journey this season, rousing season finale. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks very much.
2: A pleasure to be here as always. Wonderful wrap up.
0: And I cannot wait for season three. I got to find out how he got that body.
2: (laughs) It looks like we may get the opportunity to uh, delve into that now, which is cool.
0: And thanks to all the listeners out there listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts, get the next episode in your feed, and watch Foundation on Apple TV+, Plus where available. This is an Apple TV+, Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. Very special thanks to Madison Perna. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Close your eyes, listen to my words, and dream.